0: Radio.
1: You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone, everywhere. Welcome to Texas History Lessons, I'm Michael, and in this episode we get into part three of the Texas Cattle Drives of 1866 to 1890. Now as we been going through this project that I actually did quite a while back. I'm seeing some things that I would probably do differently, but I'm enjoying going through it myself. I hope y'all are getting something out of it. This is a useful thing for me so that later on when we're doing the lessons and we get into more about the ranch heritage of Texas and into the cattle drives later on, this is a refresher for me that's going to help me reshape and how we approach it later on with actual lessons episodes. But let's get into the first part of this today, where we're going to be look at what was involved in preparing for the drive. Now, one of the most important decisions required of a contractor was the hiring of a trail boss. If the job were given to an incompetent man without the ability to lead, then profits were in grave danger. The path that would be followed was also of great importance. The direction was obvious, as was the specific trail to be followed, such as whether they're going to use the Chisholm or the Western or other trail. However, for many reasons, including during drought conditions and when there had been previously high traffic, it could require that a herd vary several miles from the specific route of a trail. The trail boss had to know more than his men. He was responsible for making sure they had sufficient provisions. He had to get up first each morning to wake the men. He was responsible for assigning positions for the riders and for occasionally keeping count of the herd. The trail boss also found it his duty to settle disputes among his outfit and solve any problems encountered on the way. Mark Withers said that when he chose a trail boss, I always tried to look for one that was sober. A boss rides about three or four times as far as the herd goes. The trail boss wanted men that were as tough as the cattle they trailed. They would experience several hardships on the drive. The men had to be reliable and skillful. The men were generally young, in their 20s, and at times even younger, and they dressed for utility, not for fashion. A hand needed a weapon for protection from rustlers, animals, Potential outlaws. He also needed a wide-brimmed hat to keep the sun and rain off. A bandana to block dust and cold wind. Two-inch heeled boots were common to keep their feet from sliding in the stirrups. And chaps were used for protecting the legs when riding in brushy country. The cowboy's most valued possession was usually his saddle, costing more than his horse. And the best horses were quarter horses, bred for quick bursts of speed. Each cowboy needed five to seven horses on a drive. A typical outfit driving 3,000 head of cattle consisted of 12 to 18 men, 40 to 80 horses, a cook and a chuck wagon, and a wrangler to care for the horses, or remuda. George W. Saunders estimated that from 1868 to 1895, at least 35,000 men trailed cattle and the makeup of an outfit was determined, again, by skill. The cowboys were men who needed jobs in an economically struggling state, and the trail boss hired men from diverse backgrounds as long as he felt they were adequately skilled and reliable. Up to a third or more of the cowboys were either black cowboys or cowboys from the original Vaquero lineage of Texas of Hispanic descent. Now, numbers vary on exactly the percentages, but if an outfit came from South Texas or the Gulf Coast, they could be largely black or Hispanic. It could even make up entire outfits. Now, remember, it's not surprising because the first cowboys in Texas were Native Americans, and from the Hispanic population. And if you remember, a lot of the care given to the early Anglo settlers' cattle herds was given to the black slaves that they had. And after emancipation, freedmen often liked to pursue careers as cowboys because there was a little bit of an aspect of a little bit less discrimination and freedom in the that career in the West. Now, this was Texas, however, and discrimination against Hispanics and against black people, of course, was strong. But on the trail drive, your skill level at times was valued more than than your race. Now, black men and women faced a very severe situation in Texas following the Civil War, as it was in all the South. Social, legal, and economic sanctions stood against them But some scholars have pointed out that the sanctions were less severe for black men involved in the cattle trade. Now, this does not mean that we should discount discrimination against black cowboys. It was harsh, but its effect was at times lightened from economic necessity, according to some scholars. Durman Jones wrote in one of their works, as cowboys, they held a well-defined place in an early established social and economic hierarchy. A cattle outfit was an almost feudal organization with a chief who demanded and got personal loyalty. His men, particularly in larger outfits, were organized with military precision with four men as lieutenants and top hands corresponding to non-commissioned officers. In such a unit, tightly organized and operating in a almost womanless vacuum, the black cowboy was welcomed as a hand or even as a top hand, though rarely as a foreman. As Jim Perry, who worked for two decades at various positions at the XIT ranch, he stated that if it wasn't for his race, he would have been the boss of one of the divisions on the XIT long ago. Derriman Jones continue. It would, of course, be ridiculous to say there was no discrimination when men of different races worked together, particularly when most of them were Texans during the bitterest period of Reconstruction. But the demands of their job made them transcend much of their prejudice. On a drive, a cowboy's ability to do his work, to handle his share and a little extra, was far more important than his color. To be a good cowboy, one needed, first of all, to be a good man for a wild longhorn, had no more respect for a white Texan than for a black Texan. And old economic reality helped too. When there are more jobs than men to fill them, there is less discrimination. And in the beginning, with literally millions of cattle and few experienced cowboys, trail bosses could not afford the luxury of unbridled discrimination. Now, some aspects of the discrimination that would be felt was that even though freedmen could equal other cowboys in skill as riders, ropers, and cooks, and as trail hands, they rarely received equal pay to that of their white counterparts. And when they were off the trail, they were often subjected to prejudice. Now, some of the black drovers who gained some respect and some fame were Boz Icard and George Glenn. Icard, you'll remember, with his association with Charles Goodnight, had driven the Goodnight Loving Trail after the Civil War and is the basis for the character of Joshua Dietz in Lonesome Dove. And George Glenn followed the Chisholm Trail to Kansas with a herd in 1870 and when one of his employers died, he volunteered to return his employer's body to Texas for burial and he made the 42-day trip alone. And he was one of the only a few African-American members of the Old Trail Drivers Association. Now, as I said earlier, the statistics aren't really very solid, but it's pretty safe to say that of all the cowboys, black cowboys were at least 25% of the trail drives, and Hispanic cowboys were at least in the range of 15%. Now, before we get into the cattle that were driven, and the herds and the drive itself, let's take a quick break to thank Age of Radio for hosting Texas History Lessons, and then we'll continue on with those two topics. Okay, now let's look at the actual cattle we're talking about here. The Longhorns were excellent for trail driving. They were tough and sturdy beasts. Charles Goodnight said, as trail cattle, their equal never has been known. Their hooves are superior to those of any other cattle. In stampedes, they hold together better, are easier circled in a run, and rarely split off when you commence to turn the front. No animal of the cow kind can take care of itself under all conditions as well as the longhorns. They can go farther without water and endure more suffering than others. Everett Dick has given an excellent description of the type of cattle-driven north. He described them as often a yellow dun in color with a bony horn, long slender legs, light hindquarters, prominent backbone, high hip bones, a long narrow face, and a thin chest. Their slender bones were covered with little flesh and still less fat. The horns were almost invariably long and sharp, and many times enormous in their diameter and spread. F. R. Waters, secretary of the Drum Standish Commission Company, stated that the average length of horns of the Texas cattle in the early days was five and a half to six feet. D.R. Gordon, first station agent at Abilene, recalled that the horns were so long that the drovers experienced the greatest difficulty in getting the animals through the car doors when shipments were made. That reminds me of the scene when July Johnson is watching the cowboys load the cows up and they're having so much trouble because of the long horns. Lonesome Dove really is an excellent book as far as how it depicts the the trail life and the the dangers it, it involved. And the cattle usually weighed from 650 to 950 pounds with large, gleaming eyes, long, pointed noses, and they were very fleet of foot. Now, the herds that trailed to the northern trailheads usually consisted of about 2,500 to 3,000 cattle. More cattle than this amount slowed down the drive. However, herds of three to 4,000 were sometimes driven north occasionally, but these were harder to handle. There's a herd of 6,000 being trailed northward in 1866 by a Dr. J. Hargis, and J. Frank Doby wrote that the largest herd trailed was probably gathered in 1869 by a bunch of disgruntled ex-Confederates that decided to take a herd of 15,000 cattle to California. It involved 200 people, several wagons, and a remuda of 1,200 horses that started from the Brazos rivers. Wrote Doby, The cattle were driven in four divisions, but whenever there was danger of a night attack by Indians, they were bedded down together in one vast herd. But, as stated before, most herds were in the range of 2,500, and the drive usually lasted from two to three months. After the hands rounded up the cattle, all of the animals would be branded, and this usually took about three days. Of course, that would vary. Herds would leave the Gulf area or South Texas as early as March 1st, and herds leaving the panhandle of Texas could start as late as October 1st. The trail boss usually drove the herds pretty hard for a few days because they wanted to tire out the cows and make them easier to handle. If the herd could be broken, in the first few days, then there was less danger of a stampede occurring. Charles Goodnight claimed, Owing to the danger of Indians in stampedes, I always got out of the settlements as soon as possible. Cattle that were scattered were much easier traced on the trail than in the settlements. At the last town in Texas, the drover would purchase supplies for a month. Flour, bacon, and coffee were the staples. When purchasing it, it was figured that each day a man would consume three-quarter pounds of bacon and flour. Now, what about when they were on the move, after they'd had their three-quarters of a pound of bacon and flour? How'd that go? Well, two men would ride point near the front of the herd, and they were responsible for guiding as well as stopping and slowing down the cattle. And then there would be four cowboys that would ride what's called swing, two on each side to keep the cattle from straying out too far. And then two others got the lovely job of riding drag, keeping stragglers from falling behind. Everett Dick described the hierarchy of the Cowboys on a drive. He wrote, Cowboy rank was indicated by the desirability of the position on the march. The two oldest hands pointed herd. That is, one rode on each side of the leaders and directed the herd. About one-third of the way back on each side were the two swing riders on each side. At that position, the herd was about 50 feet wide. Another third of the way back were the two flank riders, and at the rear, three riders brought up the drag. This was the most undesirable post of all, for the slow, lazy, or lame cattle gradually gravitated to this position and formed the widest portion of the column. On some drives, the position was determined by rank, as described here, but in other outfits, positions changed each day, with hands taking turns at the worst positions. The herds usually travel 10 to 12 miles a day. The cook would wake before the men and prepare breakfast. The cowboys woke at daybreak and then roused the cattle, letting them graze until the boss signaled for them to start. About 11 o'clock, the cowhands stopped the herds to graze and the men ate some lunch. At the end of the day, the men spread the cattle out and watered them. Then they gathered the herd together again in a clearing to bed down. While the cattle grazed again, the men ate supper, their main meal of the day. Before relaxing, the men riding herd that night caught the horses they would need in the night. At night, usually two men would ride around the herd in opposite directions all night long, keeping a short distance away from the herd. They would sing to keep the cattle from growing restless. For some reason, the sound of a cowboy singing voice soothed the animals and helped keep them calm. It also helped keep the cowboys awake. The cowboys on night duty faced little trouble, at least until about midnight. From 12 to 2 a.m., the cattle would become restless. It took a skilled rider to make them settle down for the night. If men did not do this activity, the cattle would rise and take another position. Sometimes it was common for a herd to drift several miles in a night. The threat of a stampede was greatest during the rainy season. When cattle stampeded, the cowboys had to react quickly. To calm the stampeding herd, the cowboys had to catch the leaders and try to get them to run in a circle. Once they were turned, the cowboys would make the circle narrower and narrower until they stopped in one giant mass. Then came the task of calling the cattle by singing and riding around them. Now, stampedes were very serious incidents. It sometimes took days to gather the cattle when they spread out in different directions. And if a herd got into the habit of stampeding every night or every few nights, it not only wore out the cowboys, the cattle would lose weight and hurt the price they would bring. Cattle were not only lost in stampedes. The danger of severe injury existed for the cattle in a stampede. The cowboys were also in great danger During a stampede, any mistake while riding at the front of a stampeding herd could and often did result in death. The life on a cattle drive has often been romanticized in literature and film. However, as the character of Will Anderson, portrayed by John Wayne and the Cowboys, accurately stated, trail driving is no Sunday picnic. Everett Dick wrote, The trail hand had to expose himself to all kinds of weather. The worse the weather, the more he was needed in the saddle. Hailstorms, tornadoes, and electric storms occur in the regions of the Long Drive. Now, once the cowboys on the drive had survived all the different probable things that could go wrong and usually did, at Trail's End, say at Abilene, a locator would meet the drover and assign him an unoccupied grazing space where he was to remain until sale was made. And this must have been a really impressive sight to see. For example, the June 16, 1877 Dodge City Times reported that were, there were 60,000 head of cattle around the town. Imagine that. 60,000 cattle spread out surrounding the town of Dodge City. Must have been quite an impressive sight. No, well, that's a pretty good spot for us to stop this episode and the future episodes on the cattle drives. We're going to be looking at the actual routes followed, the trails themselves. We're going to look at the role that the Native Americans played in the cattle drives, and we'll take a little side venture into the wars that ended the lifestyle that had been followed for hundreds and hundreds of years by the Plains Indians and the extermination of the buffalo. We'll look at the Texas Railroad's development and its impact on the cattle drives and things like that. So thanks again for listening. If you have any needs for some aerial videography or aerial photography or just some real estate photography or any kind of need like that, remember to go check out panthercityair.com and see if the good people at Panther City Air can assist you in whatever project you're undertaking. Want to thank my Patreon supporters Ron, JK, Brenda, Tim, Josh, Johnny and Rama, for their support. Their generosity is assisting me greatly in bringing these episodes to you. Remember to check out Wild West Extravaganza, History Cafe podcast and Hymns of the Highway for your extra podcast needs. Also, if one more podcast to recommend Check out, um, not necessarily history related, but it's definitely a fun podcast to listen to. Check out 99th episode and be entertained by my buddy Paul and Sean. And that's going to do it for this episode. Go check out Mondo Salas, wherever you listen to good music. And we're going to end the show with one of his songs. Let's end it with um, Oh Lord this time. Not sure if I play that one very often, but let's end the episode with The Oh Lord by Mondo Salas. Take care of yourself, take care of each other, be kind. Adios.